Welcome everyone to a brand new episode of Divinity Connecting the Dots, a show that reveals interconnections across concepts vital to public and planetary health. We have an exciting panel today featuring four awesome guests, Nigel Wright-Brown, um, Dr. Erin Sinavi, Dr. Leila Dagan, all the way from the UK, and Brenda Sanders. Welcome, ladies. We're going to be talking about veganism and also um, uh, what it has do, got to do with intersectionality. And uh, my first question is for you, Leila. Um, you have mentioned to me that you're an intersectional activist. And oftentimes, you know, people wonder, what is the definition of intersectionality? So if you can, you know, kick off the show, tell us a little bit about um, how do you define it? Thank you, and uh, thank you for having me on this show. It's, it's such an important topic, so I'm really proud of actually, I feel honored to be here. So intersectionality really refers to the fact that our different identities, you know, they interconnect and interact to create our unique experiences. And uh, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw first introduced the term, and when she did that, she was actually using it to refer to the intersection of the two identities of being a woman and being a person of color. And she's a lawyer, so she was doing it, you know, um, within a legal context. And a lot of people, a lot of vegans actually say that is a legal term, we shouldn't use it. And I feel that, you know, when people say that, they don't really understand the term. You know, they say um, against intersectionality. And I feel like, you know, when you say that, you cannot be against intersectionality because, you know, the earth is wrong. You cannot say I am against the earth being wrong. I mean, you can say it, fair enough, but that doesn't change the fact that the earth is wrong. You know, we are all intersectional beings. You know, if you pull up the diagram and, you know, when you look, and this is actually a simple diagram, you know, we have so many different identity markers and all these different identities, they come together to shape us, to shape our experiences and ultimately our lives. And you know, we all have, each of us, we identify with a gender, we have an age, you know, we have, a, you know, we are a certain age, we cannot deny that, and maybe we have a religion, even if we don't believe in a religion, that still is a, an identity marker, or we speak a language, and we were brought up in a certain language, so again, all of these, we all have it, we cannot actually say we don't have that, so that makes us actually intersectional beings, and Depending on where we are, one identity might actually stand out. For example, I'm vegan. So if I go into a room full of non-vegans, me being a vegan, you know, that identity mark actually stands out. Now, if I go into a room full of white non-vegans, obviously the identities of me being a vegan and a person of color stand out. So even the intersection of the identities is actually fluid. It's not a fixed kind of, you know, that is it. We are all of that. And I think people who say they are against intersectionality, what they are really saying is that the intersection of their different identities um, makes them part of the dominant privileged group. Right, absolutely. And, and very well said. And thank you so much for you know sharing that diagram with us, um, uh, Dr. Degan. Um, but my next question is for Brenda. You know, Brenda, uh, Dr. Degan uh, spoke about um, how people are sort of anti-intersectionality. You know, they, they don't really like that term and, and so on. Uh, it triggers them. Um, but as for you, uh, in your experience, how has lack of intersectional consciousness um, impeded the overall vegan movement? Um, 
in quite a few ways, uh, actually. And, and I would say that one of the worst ways that uh, a lack of, of an understanding of the intersections of all these different, um, I would say, circumstances that create our experience in the world, um, it can be very alienating to people outside of the movement, which really doesn't make any sense when you think about it, because the purpose of every movement is to invite people in, is to get people to understand your ideology um, and then uh, sort of join in and, and lend their energy to whatever it is that your goal is. And so if you're constantly alienating groups of people, large groups of people, then you're sort of working uh, against what it is that you're supposed to be doing. And that's what not inviting this information in and uh, and trying to understand this information about intersectionality and how these different um, experiences that each individual has will then shape the experience that we have in the world. Um, I'm sorry, I was on mute. Um, I, I, I was just mentioning that you're absolutely right. You know, the way um, intersectionality has been referred to the way it has been turned into a trigger word especially in you know bodies of privilege and those who have uh, to benefit or to stand to benefit from a certain status quo um it, it has uh, definitely impeded you know the progress of the plant-based and the vegan movement um Nija, my question is to you up next welcome to the show uh my dear friend my question to you is what motivates you to do intersectional work? Well, looking at the graph that uh, Dr. D put up, I mean, you can see there's, there's a lot involved there. So I'm Black, Afro-Latina, I'm a woman, um, uh, my occupation, a number of things. And uh, I don't, me personally, I don't like all these different words, but I guess we have to have them. Uh, I motivate myself out of passion so i'm in the movement for passion when i see there's a problem i want to go out and i want to do something about it no i'm not going to solve all the world's problem but i'm passionate about it because it affects me and it affects me in a negative way when you look at all of it so um you know that that's that's all i have to say about that it's affecting me it affects the group of people that i associate with the culture whether it be black latino women um low income middle income so that's why I'm passionate about the movement. Yes, and and uh, you know, as as women of color, as persons of color, we found our whys as to why we're passionate, you know, about the movement. And oftentimes, it's very difficult to separate it from our own identity. Um, but we do have, uh, you know, uh, with us, Dr. Sanavi, and and Dr. Sanavi, um, you've identified, you know, yourself as uh, the white ally. And I must uh, mention that. You know, during the course of our conversation, I will be referring to certain uh, female feminine archetypes, which we've created for each of our panelists. Uh, you know, they've had a hand in co-designing it. Um, and, and so, Dr. Sanavi, you actually um, chose uh, this, uh, you know, archetype of um, the white ally. Now, tell us a little bit about that. Why did you choose that? Well, I, I chose that actually because I, I, you know, it's, it's, it shows, you know, 
myself and then a person of color working together because as I think I've mentioned before is I, I don't actually call myself a white ally because again that's not really for me to decide or determine that's really for people of color to determine if I'm doing anti-racist work if I'm behaving like a white ally does so and and I know that um it's going to be fluid it's going to I'm not going to be perfect all the time and I and I'm willing to you know um make mistakes. And so I, I just encourage other white people to take some steps that are um, to do anti-racist work and to um, explore their own role in, in things like, you know, white supremacy and that sort of thing. So I think, um, you know, being a, a white ally is really just terminology that, you know, means are you doing anti-racist work and are you, are you doing the right thing? And so, um, that's sort of why I chose that. Right. And and it's it's interesting that you actually mention it that the white ally arises in how the person's actions and behaviors and words are received by those of color. So it's this really important distinction that we need to make when we're thinking about this term or this archetype of the white ally. Um, my next question is is for Leila. Um, Leila, you chose the archetype of uh, the fiery warrior, right? And uh, there's a very curious um, story that an anecdote that you wanted to share with us about your ancestral origins and, and how that has impacted your choosing this archetype when initially we were discussing. Um, so, so tell us about that. Sure. Well, you know, we live in a patriarchal society with rigid gender stereotypes. You know, uh, as women, we are accepted, uh, you know, in certain roles. You know, as long as we are caring, nurturing, we are kind of uh, accepted and tolerated. But if we want to be tough, then usually we are hypersexualized. And I think that is something we see quite a lot in female athletes. Uh, but for me, the female warrior is caring, compassionate, but also courageous. And, you know, she's brave enough to speak up, to speak up against injustice, and she questions the status quo. And, uh, you know, I know the warrior, especially, you know, with, uh, with the sword and all that, it looks very aggressive and violent. And I'm actually a pacifist uh, at heart. And there's a Korean uh, saying, it goes something like, you know, the sword actually is there to protect something which is valuable. And that is how I actually see a warrior, a female warrior. She's actually there to protect life, to protect, uh, you know, the voiceless, uh, to protect justice. So that is how I see that. And the connection is, I'm actually an Azeri, so, you know, there are a lot of different ethnicities in Iran, and um, I'm, uh, I belong to the Azeri groups. And it is believed that the Amazon warriors not the ones we see in the Hollywood movies in the Wonder Woman, so not those <laughs> kind of type of uh, Amazon lawyers, but you know the two Amazon lawyers. It is believed that they live in the you know, region of today's uh, Turkey and parts of Azerbaijan. So it is difficult to actually verify that, but uh, there's also, I mean, I have read that even the word Amazon comes actually from an Iranian word, which is Amazon. And it, it means warrior. So there is this connection. It is difficult to verify that. But for me, knowing that there is a connection, it, it gives me the courage, the confidence, actually, to do the work I am doing. Because, you know, as an activist, you know, we are often in situations where it is difficult. We, we, 
it's much easier just to keep quiet and smile, but finding the courage to speak up and do the right thing. So that, you know, I always try to connect with that and get, connect with that strength to be able to do the work I'm doing. So, Right. And then thank you so much for illuminating, describing this other feminine archetype in which, um, you know, intersectionality, especially feminine intersectionality in the vegan movement can be expressed. Um, Brenda, you know, we're going to move on to your archetype. Uh, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, that you're actually the Mother Earth. And we'll bring that up in a second, but before, uh, share with us, you know, why did you choose that archetype for yourself? How does that relate to the um, Well, it was actually pretty difficult for me to choose because um, I felt like there were a few that, a few of the archetypes that um, were sort of speaking to me, but um, I settled on Mother Earth because I was looking at my work and I was just thinking about the fact that I feel like it's all one thing and it all comes back to the earth, right? And so like I work on all these different fronts. I work in food justice, I work in social justice, I work in, you know, animal rights. I, I work in all these different areas, um, environmental justice, but it's all, it all feels like one thing and it all kind of comes back to my desire to uh, create a better situation here on the planet. Um, and it, it always comes back to earth for me. And, and like at my core, that's, you know, where I'm centered. And so that, you know, that, so I eventually settled on Mother Earth. Yeah, that is very powerful. And because, um, you know, when I presented you guys with the entire archetype wheel, even I was wondering if I was given that question, where am I going to, you know, settle? And, and what is that one, uh, you know, slice that I'm going to pick for myself? It is indeed difficult. And, and you know, just to remind our viewers, the reason why we're even going through these archetypes, these feminine archetypes, is so that our viewers are able to see that there are so many different ways in which feminine, vegan intersectionality can express itself. There isn't just this one way of being a vegan. There isn't a one way of being an intersectional vegan. And there's definitely not just one way of being an intersectional vegan of color. Um, so with that, we're going to move on to Nyjah. Um, Nyjah, uh, what was the archetype that you picked? You know, before I share it. Uh, What's the spiritual? Uh, anything was spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> you, you said spiritual guy. Yes. yes. So, so tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, why you identified with that. Because, you know, before anything, I'm always into my spirituality because I think that's the foundation of the whole self. You have to connect with your spirituality. And earlier we talked about um, in the, the intersectionality chart, you know, you may not have a religion, but spirituality might be per se your religion and you're connected with the higher self. So I'm always on a journey of spirituality when I look at situations, anyone that knows me personally knows it's always a spiritual thing. You know, a bad, it's a battle between good and evil, good spirits, bad spirits, and being a good spirit, you know, how are you going to respond to things? So I'm just connected with spirituality. I'm into astro-numerology. Um, I got my, my Pisces candle burning. I got Pisces. Oil. So I'm like really deep into spirituality. So um, that's that's just me. 
Yeah, you you got my curiosity peaked. I really want to understand about Pisces candle burning. You know, <laughs> you so in the background for, for our backstage conversation. I'm I'm gonna ask my next question, Dr. Sanavi. Um, you know, we've thrown so many words out there. You know, intersectionality, colonialism, um, and and in our work, we also frequently talk about BIPOC. The other day, I was asked by. Um, a, a person, you know, obviously in, in a body of privilege that they didn't understand why uh, BIPOC, uh, you know, and issues around racism were important. And in fact, I know that some of you participated in the Global Veg Fest, and, and we did have a situation uh, where there were comments around why do we have to speak about racism and veganism should only be about animals and, and so on, uh, you know. Um, Dr. Sanavi, when did you, as, as a person, um, you know, in, in the body of what we assume in, in the world is that of privilege or codes privilege, when did you first encounter these words of like carnistic colonialism and social determinants of health and so on? Mm -hmm. Well, um, thank you for that. And I'm actually learning a lot already, even on this show from, from the other panelists, including the Pisces candle. I'm Pisces. I know nothing about astrology, but I definitely, I want to find out what that means. And I want one of those. <laughs> anyway, um, well, but when it comes to social determinants of health specifically, I'll break them down into just into the kind of separate categories. But, um, you know, I, I did know a little bit about what the social determinants of health are just based on the fact that I'm an instructor. I, I, teach. I teach a population health and epidemiology class to nurse practitioner students. And I've been doing that for about five years. So these are things, interestingly enough, that I've been teaching. Um, and we know that social determinants of health have huge implications on um, health outcomes. We know that the majority of differences we see um, with regards to inequities around health have to do with the social determinants and the systems and structures that lead to health disparities and health inequities. Um, that lead to disease. And so we know that racial discrimination through these structural inequities has um, been hardwired into our systems, right? And so um, like housing, education, employment, you know, um, access to healthy food, access to health care, all those things. So I was, I'm, I've been familiar with that one. I will say though, quite honestly, you know, BIPOC and intersectionality and um, carnistic colonialism, those are all actually relatively newer terms to me. Um, and I would just say when I started really looking at myself and doing more anti-racist work is when I the blinders sort of came off. And it's a little bit embarrassing to say well into my 40s now that um, it really wasn't until I live in the Chicago area and it wasn't until a black man in Chicago, uh, Laquan McDonald, you guys probably are familiar with the case. It was back in, I think, 2015, 2016, he was shot 16 times in the back and murdered and, you know, by police. And I really started to go, okay, wait a minute, that would just never happen to me. And I really kind of noted my own privilege and my own lack of addressing issues related to white supremacy. And um, I always, I think, thought this is someone else's problem to solve. How could I possibly try to solve this when you know, I'm part of the demographic that has created all the problems, right? So, you know, when George Floyd was murdered, you know, the term BIPOC, I think that became a lot more popular and started being used in intersectionality, carnistic, colonialism, certainly not something I've been 
um, familiar with, but when I became more involved in vegan activism uh, with the likes of everyone on this panel, for sure, uh, that I'm learning from, um, you know, that's, that's where I kind of started to learn those terms. And even though looking at even my own vegan journey, right, I think about where I um, I, I became vegan for health reasons, right? And and where did I learn that from? It was mostly, honestly, white men that were like the people that were kind of what I thought were the founders of the plant-based movement, you know? And so I'm going, wow, why are there not more representation in these communities, right? And so um, these are questions that I think a lot of organizations need to grapple with. And, and I've had to grapple with them and I still do. And so, and I, and I have a lot of learning to do and I will continue to keep trying. Well, thank you so much uh, for that, Dr. Sanavi. Uh, you know, your humility, your courage, your embracing of discomfort, and actually your participating um, in this panel is, is something that we're very grateful for. Um, you know, talking about people being considered, and especially, you know, men, uh, certain, uh, uh, you know, in bodies of privilege being considered fathers of or the founders of the plant-based movement or fathers and founders of veganism and, and so on. Um, you know, I, it, it always generates a lot of curiosity in me because you know, I speak a few different languages in addition to uh, English. And when I start to think about the word vegan, um, you know, there isn't necessarily a term for it in, in my, uh, you know, uh, my, my, my mother tongue and some other languages that I speak. Naja, I'm going to field the next question to you. And I guess that, you know, any of us <laughs> can also uh, sort of uh, have, have a stab at it. Uh, but I'll put the uh, graphic up in front of you guys. Vegan and vegetarian. Now let's have a discussion. And then Naja, we'll start with you about what do you guys think about is the difference between the two words and, you know, what might be the some uh, definitions that we've been taught but are not necessarily true about vegetarianism. But Naja, have a go at it, please. I, I know you feel strong. Well, it's not a thought, as I know. Um, vegetarian was first, okay? Vegetarian has always existed. Vegan was birthed out of vegetarianism. Now, at one point, and I can tell you, because the definition used to be may consume dairy and egg may consume. All of a sudden, the will got in there. As people here vegetarian, you can't sell uh, anything without cheese and dairy in it. It wasn't like that. Pure vegetarians existed because when Land of Kush opened up, it was a pure vegetarian restaurant. There was no cheese. There were no eggs. None of that. So this lifestyle existed. Now, with veganism coming in, I think it's what the 1940s with Donald Watson, current when he term, term, uh, termed the coin or termed the word, um, just no exploitation of any animals, none, whether it's wool, leather, silk, what, what, what have you. Um, I feel strongly about it because when you look at, and, and I always, you know, this is my sister right here, Tracy McWhorter. When you look at the African-American vegan starter guide and you go to the historical timeline we have been in this lifestyle for forever, starting with the Seventh-day Adventists, the, the Adventists. Um, this is not new to us. So I hate when people assume that people of color have no idea what this lifestyle is about or this is something new. It, it's not. We've been here. We had the, 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 the uh, Rastas. Um, and it just upsets me that 
when you use the word vegan, you're feeling you're in this elite group and, and you're not because it's still birthed out of the whole vegetarian movement. Right. And, and thank you so much for setting the record straight. Uh, Brenda, what do you think about this? You know, this whole tussle between vegan being, you know, um, there are certain connotations. Uh, obviously, non-vegans get triggered. But even within our movement, this whole thing between vegan and vegetarian, you know, give us a little bit about, you know, a flavor around how you think about it. I don't know. The way I think about it has changed over the years from, you know, when I first became a vegan and was just like so gung-ho and so like sort of militant uh, about the whole thing. And so there was all this, I had all this anger and, and animosity at that time towards people who identified as vegetarian because it, it was just like, you know, it's, that's not good enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and, um, and just wanting to educate people today, it's about, you know, a lot of people identify as vegetarian and they do in fact um, still consume um, dairy and eggs and, and like certain animal products, but they don't um, consume meat. And, and their reasoning is that I don't want an animal to have to die um, in order for me to eat. And so I try to, at this point, educate people gently about the fact that all of these industries are extremely exploitative towards animals. All of those animals are still going to die at the end of their usefulness. And, you know, that there's a way to live and exist in the world um, where you're living in harmony with everything around you. And that that just happens to be, you know, called vegan right now. But like Najee was saying, I mean, the Rastafarians have been practicing, you know, their traditions where it's all about being at one with the earth. And so like, no, I'm not going to harm animals because they are a part of this divine experience on earth and, you know, and, and whatever. So, <laughs> so I, you know, there, there is all this controversy and there is all this sort of back and forth, push and pull and fighting. And I think that the way to, um, remedy that is through education. Most of my work is about education and, and like gently educating people about these issues. And once people know, then they can make different choices. Uh, absolutely. Gentle persuasion is something that a lot of us, you know, grow to embrace. Um, I remember when I first turned vegan, I was like, completely use you use the term gung-ho i was completely gung-ho um you know i would speak with the south asian community and basically call them smug vegetarian uh, vegetarians because a lot of them you know are very arrogant about hey if we're vegetarians we don't eat meat and therefore we're doing the right thing um little realizing how cruel the dairy industry is um until somebody actually knocked me on my head a little bit and said well do you know the word for vegetarian in hindi and and you know the word is shakahari right and when you actually think about that word it means 100 percent plant-based that's exactly what it means so going to what naja was saying pure vegetarianism has existed long before it's just you know old wine in a new bottle i guess you know <laughs> old, um, uh, vocabulary and advertising of it um, as so it's cyclical um, but Dr. Dagan you know uh, share with us about your experience uh, in the UK uh, with these two terms and you know with regards to even your own ancestry and your embracing your ancestral cuisine your ancestral roots how have you processed the word vegetarian 
It is interesting because, like you were saying, um, the word vegetarian and vegan, and the word vegan doesn't actually exist in Persia, you know, in Farsi. And I was actually talking to other people from, you know, Asian countries, from, uh, you know, uh, from people, you know, with people from Japan, Hong Kong, and Pakistan, and everybody was like, kind of, we don't have the word vegan. So, uh, so that they actually use the word vegan just that you know they say in their own kind of pronunciation accent, which is a foreign word. So asking people actually to give up their cuisine, their you know traditional cuisine, and embrace a foreign word that creates a lot of uh, you know kind of uh, friction. To be honest, it is very difficult for people to embrace it. We do have the word vegetarian, so everybody knows that. And it is just, we, it literally means plant eater. That is what it means. So, but it doesn't say if it is 100% or, you know, what else is included. And it is interesting because, you know, we talk about all these traditional diets being predominantly plant-based. And I always felt, well, that wasn't the case in Iran. So I had actually to look and go and do some research because I thought the Iranians always meat eaters because at the moment it is meat is uh, plays a very central role in our cuisine you know if somebody comes to your house and you want to show them your hospitality you have to serve them meat it's like kind of you know otherwise it's just not right so anyway i came across actually a very famous um, poet um, a very famous uh, you know iranian poet and he was like kind of saying that actually a king was uh, tricked by the devil to introduce animal products into the iranian cuisine wow so he didn't realize that, so he gave, you know, meat to everybody, people started enjoying that, and by the time he realized it was actually animal product, and, you know, and they weren't eating animal products, it was too late, it was part of the diet. So mm -hmm. I find it quite interesting that actually we do have this history, this story that consuming animal product is uh, an act of um, devil, you know, an evil act, which it's, not, it's actually when you're straying away from the righteous path that you start eating uh, animal products. But it is a very, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Shahnama, you know, it's a very yes. famous, uh, yes. So it is actually part of one of the stories in Shahnama. So it's actually a very old uh, kind of, you know, poem and uh, by a very famous poet. So it is part of the history, but people don't know it. Right. So, and it is sad because I think, again, there's a lot of, um, you know, when people say go vegan, they don't know what it means. And then they uh, try actually to introduce all these European vegan food, mm. you know, tacos, oatmeal. We don't have all these things. Mm. So, and so there's a lot of actually, you know, again, it is something the elite do, the privileged, uh, you know, rich Iranians do. So they, I, I think it is sad because obviously as a nutritionist, I'm really interested in actually promoting health. And I know the health benefits of plant-based diet. But, so we need to find a new world. Or just go back to what you were calling it, you know, be a plant eater. You know, that says it all. So yes, uh, it is interesting to you know to play with these words and find a new meaning. Exactly, and and there are just some. Um, Nigel, you want yeah, to I just want to say something that I forgot to to ask. Um, what? Why are eggs and milk in the definition when they're not vegetables? That's what confuses me all the time. Like who who made that decision to put them in there and they're not even vegetables? Right. And, and, and that's a very pertinent question. You know, uh, you mentioned in the 1940s in the UK when, uh, you know, this word was coined. Um, I was doing some research and I realized that um, before India was colonized, 
um, you know, imperialists and colonialists, uh, specifically from Great Britain, had not experienced an entire nation or entire culture of persons consuming predominantly plant-based diet, you know, to the extent that they saw that they were. And uh, so new terms had to be coined because they were struggling to, you know, wrap their arms and uh, wrap their heads around like how these people were eating. So they initially called it Hindu vegetarianism. And, and then as they started to almost kind of like inject dairy through military farms in, into South Asia um, and, and the uptake of dairy started increasing in the Indian diet, the word vegetarian became closer to lacto-ovo or lacto-vegetarianism, you right. know, and, and mm -hmm. then almost became a generic. So when now in the modern days, when people say vegetarian, it automatically triggers people and they're like, oh, must consume dairy, cheese, eggs, maybe, you know, that kind of thing. But it's always been a maybe, it's not a will. It just turned into a will, as you were saying that. Right. <laughs> and and so it's, it's pretty interesting because, you know, you hear a lot of other terms too. You hear about the ahimsa diet. You right. hear about these alternatives like tasvik yes. nutrition mm -hmm. um, as opposed to tamsic nutrition in, in the yogic world and, and so on. Um, and, and that just, you know, talks to the colonial layers um, that our vocabulary, that our cuisine, etc. has also gone through. Um, I'm actually going to pull up a pretty provocative oil on canvas. Uh, that was created by an artist called Jimmy May. And, and I would love to receive your response, uh, you know, to this. Uh, we'll start with you, uh, Dr. Sinavi. So carnistic colonialism and the impact on divine feminine. I'm just going to leave this on for a few seconds so you guys can take this in. It's very provocative. Um, first, when I saw this, it's called Mother's Milk. Dr. Sinavi. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely like a one of those shock value images for sure. I guess one of the th things that comes to mind for me when I see that is it really speaks to people's cognitive dissonance around you know around how we treat animals, right? And and if we can put ourselves in their shoes and how people just don't necessarily even think twice about the, what is on their plate, right? It's not beef; it's a cow. You know, this is my daughter who's major animal activist she's she's very much like don't call it pork let's call it pig that's what you're eating is a pig you know so uh, that's kind of i guess what, what i thought when i first saw it right um dr dagan what about you your reflections um i actually when i saw that because especially if he's a white man actually having that meat isn't it and i thought about the idea that white is better you know, in a lot of Asian and African countries, it's like kind of whatever comes from the West, even the food is better, you know, burger, if it has, you know, meat and everything. So they embrace it just because, you know, they have this idea that whatever comes from the West is better. And it is sad, again, because we all these processed foods, for example, mm -hmm. animal products comes actually you know, from the West. And, uh, you know, when we talk about actually decolonizing nutrition, it's about going back to, eating plants, what you used to eat, and uh, rejecting all these processed foods. Yeah. Which is like kind of, you know, you go to China, India, and I haven't been to Iran, so I can't really comment on that, but you have McDonald's, uh, Pizza Hut, and which are actually, it's interesting, um, expensive places, so only people who are well off actually can afford to go to those places to eat, 
But if you think about it, it's junk food. <laughs> you exactly. know, something which is just junk food is seen as a, a symbol of status. Yeah. So that is what comes to mind when I look at that picture. Great. Brenda, what do you think, you know, when we actually, when you look at this picture, um, this amazing picture? I mean, it is, it is amazing and it is uh, sort of um, uh, just kind of in your face, um, has, has a huge impact. But I, I will say that the thing that I, the first thing that I thought was that, you know, um, it, it kind of pushes this idea that he has permission. Right. And, yes. and I don't, <laughs> yeah, and I don't feel like he does, you know, I mean, to sh and, and cows are, you know, very nurturing and, you know, uh, very uh, sort of motherly and that kind of thing. But I, I don't think that that is what a cow would be doing. <laughs> if given the choice, um, I don't think that she would be holding a, a human and and nursing him and so you know in, in a way i i almost wish that it was uh that she was resisting more um because they do and, and all animals do resist exploitation and and i think that um you know we we lose sight of that in the normalization of of exploiting animals and the fact that so much of their resistance is hidden from us um constantly yeah. here in baltimore every single year a cow escapes from one of our slaughterhouses and then we get to like watch this cow run through the streets of baltimore on the news and they have the choppers like every year every year one cow escapes and runs for his life and i i, I just feel like we don't see enough of that um and so although this photo is um you know very impactful you know i um or, or this painting i'm sorry is is very impactful um, I just think that it, it would be certainly um, inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You spoke about permission, and, and that really is a very profound observation that you've made, Brenda, um, looking at this picture. Um, Naja, what, what is this, you know, what comes up for you when, when you look at it? There's, there's a lot of things, but um, it's just making it look like it's not natural to get milk from your actual biological mother's breast. That's that's what it looks like to me, that you need to get this milk from an animal. Uh, and then the fact that it, it, it is a white man, it speaks to the mentality. It, it speaks to a certain sick mentality. Um, and I'm gonna just throw it out there. Sex with the animals or just pornographic. It, it, I don't like it. As soon as you brought it up, I was disgusted. Right. So there's a lot of provocation um, across the board. Um, you've mentioned, um, Dr. Sanavi mentioned cognitive dissonance, that it, you know, probably gets people to think about, hey, that's an animal. Is that natural? The whole idea challenges that normalization of exploitation of animals that we've created. Um, Dr. Jagan spoke about well, it's better. So if uh, a person in the body of privilege, uh, color that codes privilege can have it. And if I have access to it, then it's better. It's status. It's worthy of, you know, higher status. Brenda spoke about this profound observation she made around permission that there's not even resistance shown by the animal, which is completely unnatural, you know, um, but, but that this person somehow has permission to violate 
the animal in, in the manner that they are doing. And and you mentioned, Nigel, that it's, uh, it's, it's pretty disgusting. It evokes the emotion of disgust. Um, you're, you're absolutely, it's, it's all of that and, and more. And, and Jimmy May, you know, he has some very powerful graphics and imagery on his um, Instagram, uh, you know, uh, in addition to this. Now, my, my next question, uh, you know, is to Dr. Sanavi, you know, when did you connect the dots? I mean, images like these have now become popular in, in my view, you know, it, it's people, vegans who are finding their voices and they're starting to express themselves in, in through art and through creativity and through other places. Um, but, you know, when you went plant-based or when you went vegan, when did you first connect the dots um, that in order for vegans with privilege to embrace veganism truly, that they must also learn to um, understand about unconscious bias? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I have to say, I wish, I wish, I wish it had been sooner. I, I feel like I've been whole food plant-based for 10 years now. And I certainly have been promoting that in my practice and, and for, for a long time. And, you know, and it wasn't though until I really became aware of, to use Robin DiAngelo's term, my white fragility, I guess, is when I realized, um, you know, around around the recent racial racial justice, you know, movement that uh, I became aware of, um, you know, at, started making me ask questions. Okay, so like, why did, has it taken so long to, for me to resolve my own cognitive dissonance, if you will, um, around racism? I feel, um, you know, and then I'm like sitting here feeling guilty, and I'm like, my feeling guilty is serving no one, and it is certainly. Um, used oftentimes by white people as an excuse to disengage. So I, I just started engaging, right? I, I think I started connecting the dots when I realized that my own discomfort was necessary around this. Um, I needed to and really continue to need to kind of grapple with the discomfort um, by not getting uncomfortable um, and challenging the status quo. Um, I was I was continuing white centrality, really. I was continuing the, um, you know, oppressing victims of systemic racism or those without a voice, right? And so I think it, it, for me and as white people experience the discomfort instead of running from it, I think I, I hope that they will choose to use it as a motivator. You know, people of color feel this discomfort their whole lives on a daily basis. And and of course, you know, in, in with veganism, the animals, they don't have a voice, right? And that's why we have to be there for them. And, um, you know, one of the things I think that uh, what, what some white people will say, for example, is I, I, I'm not racist. And I think I think it's important to kind of challenge this, this uh, individualism though right i you know i treat everyone the same this is what i've heard from some peers of mine you know because i'm like everyone has this unconscious bias it's ingrained in us it's just the way it is um but we can only we can't do this if we only think that mean bad people participate in racism right it's a structure it's a system and all of us have acted on it and so um it may not be intentional but it has still caused a lot of harm and so Instead, we have to ask ourselves, I think, as white people, so I'm talking to now, right, is how has racism shaped me? I'm, um, and I'm going to make mistakes along the way. And, and, you know, we all have to be okay with making mistakes around this, but we have to start to speak up because we created these problems. And so 
we really have to be a part of solving the problems. Yes, it's, it's really about starting to see what the issue is and also then starting to become active in being a part of the solution. My next question is for you, Brenda. Dr. Sanavi mentioned um, you know, unconscious bias and, and how she's learning and how she's really, really trying to identify it. Now, you know, in the work that you do, um, what is the overall overarching goal of the work that you're doing and, and how might it be moving the vegan consciousness and intersectional vegan consciousness towards, you know, helping one and all, not just vegans of color, but also vegans in bodies of privilege to start to recognize and deal with um, their unconscious bias? Well, the basic um, sort of mission and thrust of my work is to make vegan living completely 100% accessible to everybody, everybody. And, and I would have thought that that wasn't a controversial uh, statement to make. But I found within the vegan movement and within the animal rights movement, which I do consider to be two different movements that like crisscross at times, but they, they do feel different to me at times. Um, I have found that that is a controversial statement to make. Um, but, I, you know, it, it, it's very much about, you know, it's very theoretical in one sense in that, you know, it, it's just this idea that, um, you know, that animals are having a particular experience on the planet that is due to human activity. Um, but it also is very practical because in your day-to-day -day life, um, there are so many different uh, things that you can do, so many different actions that you can take that can negatively or positively impact animals and the planet. Um, and so for me, I want to create uh, a food system specifically, but like a world in which everybody has the same ability to create a harmonious environment for ourselves, for the animals, you know, and for the ecosystems on the planet itself. Um, but that starts with creating access. So if we want to talk about food specifically, then I think that every person should have the right, everybody has the right to be able to eat healthy plant-based food, every person. Right. So that's just ground zero. That's that's the, the basic, you know, is is that we should have a food system that doesn't exclude entire groups of people based on their race and socioeconomic status from being able to access healthy plant foods. And so, you know, that's the first goal that I have. And then it kind of expands out from there um, and 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 getting people who have the privilege to be able to. Um, access this lifestyle, th this way of living, um, to understand not everybody has the same access that you do. I think that's a great first step. Like, just understand and stop saying to me, well, anybody can afford beans and rice. Beans and rice are cheap. Yes. I mean, we, we can all recognize that beans and rice are cheap. At the same time, some of the neighborhoods where I work, they don't even have beans and rice in the corner store. Right. So you want to you want to talk about like people really not having they have pickled pig feet and, you know, pig snouts and pig ears and, you know, chitlins. And like that's the kinds of foods that are being made available to folks. And even if they did have access to beans and rice, show me like a person who who would choose to eat beans and rice every single day as opposed to eat from the dollar menu at McDonald's. Yeah. Both are equally cheap, <laughs> but which one are they going to choose if given the choice, right? 
And so just getting people within the movement who may have their blinders on to understand that there are lots of different levels to accessibility and we need to even the playing field. Yeah, thank you so much. Powerful words right there. I'm gonna pull up an, um, an image uh, that, that is really, um, you know, what you've helped us with, Brenda, is bring about this vocabulary of food justice, right? You've spoken about the fact that um, it shouldn't be controversial, that everyone should have access to food, but the reality is that there are people who don't understand that, you know, uh, that there are some people who don't. And then the idea of what's, um, what's cheap, what's cost effective also comes into play. And when you look at it from the filter of privilege, it's the answer is beans and rice, but reality is the dollar menu is really, really just as, uh, you know, cheap or sometimes cheaper than beans and rice. So, um, Naja, I'm going to move over to you, you know, with the work that you do. Um, tell me like this whole idea around, um, or the insistence that some people have that, no, 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 keep it neutral. Don't bring racism into this. This is food, this is a <laughs> desert, you know, and, and but it's it's not food apartheid. And, and I know that at the Food Empowerment Project, um, Lauren Ornelas has done a lot of work and she speaks about these words and she says, food apartheid. Um, please share with me your reflections and also through your perspective, um, you know, as uh, a nonprofit founder, as a business uh, person in in Maryland, uh, you know how how are you dealing with this? What, your your how how is your work dealing with this? Well, you first started. You said something about uh, you know the race racism impact to it. Well, racism is everywhere, and I was surprised that it was in the vegan movement. Um, Brenda could tell you that because I was shocked and didn't want any parts of it. I'm like, are you kidding me? I thought everyone was compassion, compassionate. Even in the restaurant business where the majority of people that work for us aren't vegan, thought all vegans were compassionate. And that's, that, that's just not the case. If you're racist, you're not compassionate. I'm sorry if you're compassionate for the animals or whatever, you're not, not compassionate. So in our work, we have to be compassionate <laughs> enough to get this information, get the food, get the events, whether it be by way of festival, by way of a vegan week, by way of table sampling, you know, when COVID wasn't here and when COVID goes away, however we can access our, get to our people with this information and these events and um, bridge that gap on their uh, knowledge and learn that they do have some vegan veg soul in them and they can be compassionate around animals. They can be compassionate about their eating. They can be compassionate about their spirituality because again, it's still that foundation. You have to build yourself from within in order to come out and appreciate the information that is being delivered to you. It starts there. Right, well, but thank you so much. Yeah. Can yeah. I just say one thing? You were talking about uh, Food Empowerment Project and, and Lauren Ornelas, and I just wanted to, to point out that the reason why um, she feels um, like we should be using the term food apartheid as opposed to food desert is because, um, you know, deserts are more, uh, may, may be seen as more naturally occurring, right? Like, yeah. oh, a desert is a, a natural biome as opposed to apartheid, which is something that is imposed on a group of people. And now we know, people who are doing food justice know, uh, food justice work, that the way that the food system is set up in, you know, uh, around people, low-income people of color is no accident. It's right. not a natural occurrence. It didn't just happen. It is a series of 
decisions that were made oftentimes at the governmental level, oftentimes at the corporate level, that certain people are going to be targeted with mm -hmm. the worst possible foods and the cheapest foods that you know are imaginable and the most harmful foods that are imaginable. And that is the system that is in place. And that's why Lauren feels like we shouldn't use that term anymore. Yeah, absolutely. The intent, the intent to do the harm that's being yes. done for a number of reasons, whether it's to test on us medically, which you can see in a hospital state that we're in, all of that. <laughs> well, you, you know, it's, it's pretty important for a lot of and especially our viewers out there to really understand that um, it's not by default but it's by decisive design. And there's a distinction between those two. And which is why food apartheid is an example of a vegan intersectional term. It's part of that food vocabulary, food justice vocabulary, or even vegan vo vocabulary that we ought to understand um, if, if we are part of that vegan movement. You know, talking about compassion, talking about food apartheid, um, Dr. Dagan, you know, you're in the UK. And, and currently, a lot of people, you know, out here stateside feel that uh, veganism is really stronger in the UK, um, you know, versus uh, here in the US. Um, what, what is your view on the food apartheid sorts of systems that you may have seen? Um, you know, you're part of the plant-based health uh, professionals uh, group. Um, as part of your work, how do you see that present and how do you deal with that? Well, I think, you know, I like the term actually food apartheid because as you said, it is by design and it is really sad because, you know, again, we say rice and beans uh, are cheap, but we don't consider that some people don't even have a kitchen. You know, Erin mm. um, actually mentioned the social determinants of health. So it is just, you know, the neighborhood they live, what do they have actually access to? And um, their homes, how big is actually their home? Can they actually, because we say, oh, buy, you know, bulks of this and that. Do they have actually enough space in their play, you know, homes to actually store those things? And I have worked in the community where people didn't have a kitchen. They didn't have enough space because they were sharing, you know, just one room with the whole family. So they couldn't actually go and buy that. They had to go every day and buy something to eat. And yes, it was much easier just to go to a junk food place and have, you know, something cheap, which was tastier. And again, we don't uh, consider the impact of uh, racism and discrimination on uh, stress. It causes stress. And when you are stressed, you want to uh, go for food which comforts you. I know we shouldn't, but you know, how can you tell anyone, somebody who is stressed or who has so many problems or don't eat that, that is not healthy. You have to offer a healthy solution which is, you know, it is accessible, they can actually do it, it is easy. Again, we need to put ourselves in their shoes, what they are going through and how much uh, energy and resources they have, uh, you know, at their hands and they don't usually. So we have to make it as easy as possible for them. Right. So we can't just, you know, throw out these words, oh, this is cheap, buy that and do this. And I think in the UK, we face the same problems. I mean, a lot of people don't uh, actually are not aware that we do have these so-called, you know, food deserts. But, uh, you know, it does exist, but we just hear it, you know, about the US. No, it, ha it, is, uh, it does exist here as well. So we have the same problems and unfortunately, um, it is difficult to tackle. It is really hard. Exactly. And and you, you said something really important out there that it's important for us to put 
ourselves in those person's shoes. And, and I was just reading um, the Distressed uh, Communities Index, which is actually uh, released by a, um, an organization called the Economic Innovation Group. And what they do is at a zip code level in the United States, mm -hmm. they have a six um, category, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of stratification sort of a system where they say these are uh, zip codes that are distressed, these are zip codes that are at, um, you know, a risk zip codes, and then there are prosperous and, uh, you know, comfortable zip codes and so on. And, and the report goes on to say that 110 million Americans live either in an at-risk zip code or a distressed zip code and the rest of the population that lives in a prosperous zip code has no idea around how these people live. They have no idea about their world. They have no idea. They, in fact, even consider it too risky for themselves to venture into, you know, those neighborhoods. And, and that is the, the level of the divide, you know, that, that is pervasive. And I'm pretty sure it's not just the U.S., it's uh, the U.K., it's the rest mm -hmm. of the world. You know, even, uh, you know, the, the country that I come in from, there's a huge power distance. So there are places that, uh, you know, so-called wealthy people wouldn't even ever venture um, because they don't care to look and therefore they don't know how to provide solutions. Um, in the last few minutes, we're going to quickly move on to uh, what is it that the white allies can do, you know, and, and Dr. Sanavi, I, I know that there's a slew of different, you know, ideas that you have. Tell us about what should be in the white ally toolkit, and then we'll just do a quick round with the rest of our panelists and also ask them what might be some of the suggestions uh, that you have for our, you know, white vegan viewers and indeed white transitioning vegan viewers as to what might they have um, in their toolkit in order to understand intersectionality a little better. Dr. Sanavi. Well, I would just say at least the first step, the first step is white people have to go inward. They have to recognize their own privilege. And it has to start with that personal journey, um, interrogating your own racial identity or radicalized identity, deconditioning, challenging your own beliefs. And how do you do this? You have to start educating yourself, continual education, read books, read the work of BIPOC authors, learn about the history of colonialism. And do not rely on your black and brown friends to and colleagues to educate you on this. You have to do it yourself. You have to do it on your own. But the foundation of the education really has to be rooted in the voices and perspectives of, of BIPOC people. Um, and, and, you know, work for white people has to be internal and amongst other white people and try to educate your peers. But you shouldn't stop there. You know what I mean? You still have to take action and do anti-racist work. So get involved in organizations that are BIPOC led, you know, especially around racial justice issues, you know, and, and the vegan movement. Um, as a health practitioner, I work, um, you know, in lifestyle medicine, and I work to actually educate other practitioners about the social determinants of health. And it's, it's not, it's not the food choices, you know, we have to get away from this, you know, it's, you're making poor choices, and we have to look at the systems that they have been living and working and in their whole lives. And those are the things you have to do and really breaking silence. When you see it, you have to call it out breaking silence on racism. Um, as as white people, we are often the first ones that are going to be listened to and heard and we need to be calling out institutionalized racism in our places of work and um, you know social circles and things like that um, donating to um, nonprofits and organizations that are, are doing work um, you know 
around around you know veganism as well as 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 racial justice work is really really important. Those are just a few ideas I you know, but um, but you know, and then listening, you know, listening and learning it never ends because and I still learn every day. So. Absolutely, we'll just take a very quick round, um, Nija, and then Brenda, and then Dr. Dagan, uh, share with us your thoughts, and also as we try to close out our amazing episode, uh, share with us how we can find you. Nija, uh, I think Nija's uh, frozen, but she'll be right back with us. Brenda, do you want to kickstart that? Oh, there she is. Oh. Okay. No. We're not able to hear you, Nija. Okay, Brenda. Okay, okay. Yes. I'm, I'm here. Oh, I'm sorry. Something's going on with the Wi-Fi. I'm sorry. Um, I, my final thought on this is, um, again, it just goes back to uh, spirituality. Racism, racism is always going to be there. Uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, um, but I'm not going to let that stop me from doing the work that I have to do. I will continue to bridge the gaps, you know, <laughs> amongst the, the people that I need to bridge the gaps with. And just follow me on uh, Nadja Speaks at Nadja Speaks. Uh, follow the land of Kush at the land of Kush and Black Veg at Black Veg Society. Uh, and uh, that's a, a good way we can connect and continue the conversation and collaborate on some things. Thank you, Naja. Brenda. I would say that for uh, white folks um, who are aspiring to be white allies, uh, challenge yourself, feel uncomfortable, um, and, and, and just, just accept that it's going to be uncomfortable. Um, and be okay with that, you know, challenge other folks. Uh, oftentimes people just, uh, they may hear something that's terrible, you know, that somebody says, and they just don't even engage because they don't, again, want that discomfort. Well, engage, you know, in whatever way that you can and then feel uncomfortable. They're going to be uncomfortable. Everybody's going to be uncomfortable. It's okay. Um, that's the way to start, you know, to change things and to shift things. Um, so, so that's the one thing that I would say is like, get used to being uncomfortable. Um, I can be found, uh, you know, uh, Afro Vegan Society is my baby. It's an organization where we are doing amazing work to spread, you know, um, information, inspiration, and um, resources to, to folks in marginalized Black and Brown communities um, about transitioning to vegan. So any support there. I personally have a Patreon where people sometimes help me um, eat, and um, <laughs> which, you know, is, is I, I like to do that. And, um, and I now have a podcast, uh, which is called Food and Justice uh, awesome. with Brenda Sanders. And um, so people can hit me up at sjpodcast.com. Thank you. Dr. Jagan. Well, I think, you know, we keep saying BIPOC and we need to realize that, you know, we got to talk about intersectionality and how we have, you know, different identities. So when we talk about BIPOC, we are not a homogenous group. So I think, you know, a white ally actually should ask questions, be curious, don't assume that we are all the same and we all want the same things and we all have the same lived experience. We don't. I mean, you know, just look at this panel, the four of us, we come from different backgrounds, different experiences. So just be curious and ask questions. I'm sure we are all happy to share our experiences and how it feels to be us. So I think that is where we could start a good conversation, uh, you know, with a white ally. Um, yes, you can find me on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and you can look me up you know, under my name and LinkedIn. And I also have my website, drleilad.com. So you can find me. Thank you so much, Dr. Sinavi. Where can we find you quickly? And then we will end our episode. Yeah, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. 
That's great. Thank okay. You. All right. Thank you so much, ladies. This has been a very powerful episode. Um, thank you so much for everything that you do. And uh, I'm Nivi Jaswal, your host for Divinity Connecting the Dots. We'll see you next month. Mm -hmm.